Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. As Australia's borders begin to reopen after a long 18 months, migration is being touted as essential to the country's economic recovery. Last year was the first time that more people left Australia than arrived since World War II. Immigration has been the driver of jobs and economic growth for nearly 80 years now. But is there still an appetite for coming to Australia after all this time? Will immigration help Australia to grow its way out of debt? Let's meet our panel. Gabriella D'Souza, Senior Economist at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. So, Jock Collins, I'm a Professor of Social Economics at the UTS Business School. After 18 long months, the first steps are being taken to reopen the international border. As Australia approaches a national vaccination rate of 80%, the federal government has announced that overseas travel restrictions will be eased for fully vaxxed Australians. However, it's less clear when borders will reopen to migrants seeking to work and live in Australia. Immigration has been a mainstay driver of jobs and economic activity dating back to the post-World War II push. Since March last year, the international border has been effectively sealed. What was the impact of reduced migration on the Australian economy during the COVID-19 era? Well, look, Australia's been one of the great nations of immigration. We've had a post-war immigration program, unlike most nations other than Canada and the States and New Zealand, and, you know, there's often been debates about, you know, what is the economic impact of immigration? And really, in my view, it's only when immigration stopped, as it did during the COVID crisis, and we've had it's like a natural experiment that we can see the dimensions of importance of immigration on the Australian economy, the labour market, of course, in particular, by closing the borders. This is a big, massive jolt. And we can see the impact on all sorts of industries from universities with the stopping of international students, from fruit picking with the stopping of working holiday makers to all sorts of other sort of hospitality industries from very skilled industries across the board. So this has really been, I think, a great wake up call, if you like. Immigration really matters very significantly across the board in such a complex way. I was just going to add to that, you know, even the government's intergenerational report, which was released earlier this year, noted that one of the biggest effects of this pandemic is going to be lower population growth. So in July, when the government had its July economic fiscal update in 2020, government projected 0.6 as being its population growth. And even that was going, like 0.6 was going to be the lowest population growth we've had in a century. So that's pretty huge. And then the actual budget came out the following year. So that was earlier this year in 2021. It was actually 0.1 in terms of our population growth. So it was even lower than than their very low estimate. You know, it has had a really large impact on our population growth, on our economy in a number of areas. I don't think it's possible to overstate just how much of an issue this has been. 
This has been an issue, but industry and a few key players are really pushing for immigration to resume. We've got the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry who wants to see skilled migration double to 200,000 people per year. We've had Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales Premier, calling for a big New South Wales after two years previously his predecessor wanted a pause on migration. We've had the Treasurer, Josh Feinberg, tell a business conference last week that the federal government is rethinking the size and the composition of the migration program post-pandemic. How important is an aggressive resumption of immigration levels for Australia's post-pandemic economic recovery? Yeah, look, I think it's it's an interesting claim. From what we know about migration, we know that it's what economists call pro-cyclical. So when our economy is doing quite well in Australia, that leads to a huge influx of migrants because they want to make opportunities for themselves. And Australia looks like a relatively good destination. So I think, you know, largely a lot of our migration is demand driven. We'll see those numbers rise anyway, because of the nature of our system. But I think, you know, it is important for countries to state that they're supportive. So I think it made sense for Dominic to say that. Yeah, I think I think it was an important commitment to make and important to let people know that once we open up, Australia is open for migration again. Jock, when I was doing my research for this episode, I came across a quote from Charles Price, the migration scholar, who compared the Australian appetite for immigration to the feeding patterns of a boa constrictor. Can you explain this concept a bit further? And then do you think that this sort of statement is still applicable to the current context? Yes, well, Charles Price was one of the great immigration scholars, a demographer, one of the greats, really, of Australian uh, immigration scholarship. And his metaphor was perfectly correct. Basically, there's a a link, a synchronisation between rates of economic growth and immigration. When we have an economic boom, we take in a big gulp of immigration. Uh, When we turn into recession, we stop the intake, we cut it down drastically, we more or less consume what's inside our belly, rest and hibernate until the next boom and open up again. And if you look at Australia's post-war immigration history, that's fairly clear. Uh, There have been rises and falls. After each one of the uh, post-war recessions, 74, 5, 82, 3 and 1991, the immigration intake has been reduced dramatically honouring that boa constrictor-like characteristic. And when we started the post-war immigration program, Arthur Cornwall, the first minister for immigration, said, look, we're going to have a program that's going to be set at 1% of the population growth, which is, you know, what Canada's doing now. The interesting point is the politics of immigration, because as you point out, Toby, the previous Liberal Premier had wanted to cut immigration by half. The new immigration Premier wants to increase it substantially. There's something about the politics of immigration that sort of comes through here. And what we saw before COVID and then before the economic downturn was the big story was congestion busting. Too much immigration, too much congestion in Sydney and Melbourne, stop immigration, stop house prices increasing. Now, with all the um, the stopping of the global flow of labour and people, the real concern is kickstarting the economy around. The economic benefits of immigration have seemed to be the key priority here. It's a very interesting dynamic. And we saw the Prime Minister in the last election talk about reducing immigration. And indeed, 
it reduced the annual permanent intake from 190,000 to 160,000 a year, jumping on that slowing down immigration bandwagon. Uh, now, in the um, post-COVID uh, environment, probably what we'll see is he's going to align with Perrottet and say, right, the priority at the moment is kickstarting growth in a big way. A constraint is a lack of labour-skilled, unskilled, permanent, temporary. Uh, let's open the doors and get the whole thing rolling back as it was previously. Let's talk about skilled immigration. Among OECD countries, it's been reported that only Switzerland and Luxembourg have a higher relative immigrant population of skilled migrants. Why has Australia been so reliant on skilled migration for so long? You know, skilled migration took over family reunification in about 1996. Yeah, so around that time, we started to see a higher proportion of skilled workers relative to family workers enter through the permanent migration system. We're no different to a lot of other countries like, you know, Canada and New Zealand who also implemented skill-based independent migration systems, so kind of like our points-based system that we have here. Part of the reason for that is it kind of makes sense to do so. If you are a desirable country to live in, people would like to live in your country and to increase their earning capacity and they have the skills to make that work, it kind of sounds a bit like a win-win-win proposition. And it's been good for migrants. We don't often talk about this, but migration is really good for migrants. It allows some migrants to increase their earnings capacities by about 16 times what they would have earned in their home countries just by moving alone. It's good for governments. So governments tend to reap massive economic fiscal benefits from migration. You know, we know that from the intergenerational report. And the last I guess element of that is businesses, you know, businesses who might need skills that they don't necessarily have access to in Australia. Lots of CEOs, tech people, the entire tech Silicon Valley infrastructure was built through migration and tech capabilities predominantly from South Asia. It's kind of a no-brainer to me why that has happened and why it's come about in that way. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And, um, you know, what we've seen in the last 70 years of post-immigration is this movement from a big focus on settler immigration will bring families to come here, families to settle. And, of course, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, the big demand was really for factory fodder and migrants would literally arrive off the boat one day and into the factory the next day. What's happened, of course, since then is the transformation of the Australian and the global economy. Manufacturing has shrunk considerably, uh, and it's the services sector that uh, employs the bulk of Australian workers to high tech. Immigration policy became fine-tuned towards globalisation, and that meant really a shift away from family union intakes to one where we're considerably emphasising skilled migration. Now, the interesting question here is that what also happened since John Howard was Prime Minister is this massive growth of temporary migration. So that in the last few years, the temporary migration program has outnumbered the permanent program by three or four times to one, mainly international students who can work for 20 hours a week, working holiday makers and temporary skilled migrants. The question to me then was, well, you know, has Australia abandoned the settler immigration model that it had for many, many decades? And has it sort of shifted to that European guest worker immigration model, where we sort of take workers in when we need it, they're temporary, and when we don't need them, we just kick them out? The numbers seem to suggest that three or four times to one. 
But when you think about it, a number of those people who become permanent migrants have had temporary migration experiences. But nevertheless, I think it's a good time to rethink Australian immigration policy, to reassess it and to reset it. One of the big problems uh, I think we need to address is the whole thing about wage theft. There have been so many reports by the Fair Work Commission about wage theft of uh, working holiday makers on the farms, of temporary students, uh, international students in the restaurants and in the service stations and other fast food areas, that really what's been happening here is the temporary migrant influx has been seen as a very exploitable sort of section of labour. And not only are they available, but they're being paid much less than award wages and conditions, much less acceptable. Now, to me, that's a grave mistake. It's the Achilles heel of the current immigration program. And I haven't yet seen any federal government clear intention to address that very, very fully, because unless that's sort of undermined and stopped, then I think we really threaten the long-term viability. Because look, the States, Canada, Britain, Europe, they're all wanting these same school migrants that we do. We're in an international market. If we get this very, very bad reputation that we've earned, unfortunately, in the last four or five or 10 years of exploiting temporary migrant workers, they're not going to look very favourably upon us in terms of coming here as a permanent skilled worker in the future. And I think that's a critical issue that needs to be reassessed at this juncture. I think one of the key ways that we deal with that issue is to try and put as much as possible temporary workers, permanent workers and Australian workers on the same footing. One of the reasons why it's so rampant in the temporary sector is because there are visa conditions that make it easier to exploit students, for example, in a temporary visa. So one of the visa conditions is you cannot work for more than 40 hours a fortnight during your study period. Once an employer knows that that's happened to you once, they have an upper hand over you in that relationship where they can say, well, we can you know, go to the Department of Immigration and tell on you. So that then gives the employer a lot more power of you. Similarly, with working holiday maker visas, you know, they have an 88-day requirement to work in the regions to get their next working holiday maker visa. Now, there's a lot of calls for those restrictions to be removed. I think that makes sense. You know, maybe we should be rethinking whether or not we actually keep those work restrictions in place. I mean, this goes to the broader issue, right? The idea that Australia has lost its sheen as a destination for migrants. You know, we've got these diplomatic tensions with China that impact on a major source of migration. We've got COVID pressures currently ongoing in India. Migrant workers on temporary visas were initially excluded from government support payments during lockdowns. Now, as we're beginning to reopen, we've discussed that Canada is also saying, well, look, we're going to need more migrants to deal with labour shortages. We've got the US that's also going to be looking for more migrants. Can Australia really return to its previous heights of net migration? Or have we fumbled the ball with our handling of how we treat both temporary and skilled migrants over the past 18 months? Look, I think the evidence is irrefutable that we have fumbled the ball greatly in terms of immigration policy. I think the last two decades have really been one of seeing immigration as sort of like a quick cash cow, a quick fix, a quick hit, a very short-sighted policy. Immigration is about nation building. It's about long-term economic structural, population, cultural change, 
we've become a cosmopolitan society. Immigration affects all dimensions, not only of economic life, but social and political and cultural life. You know, there's a real disservice here about just sort of leaning on the quick fix, fixed temporary migration, guest worker scheme, without providing pathways. I've always thought that family reunion has been a critical part of our immigration success. What we're doing is we're looking at immediate labour fix and return from immigration, the taxation return. And we're not looking at the broad societal returns of immigration and nation building. And I think this is a very good time to reassess that, yes, we want immigrants uh, and immigrant workers to help sort of pull us out of the downturn that we've had through COVID, but it's a great opportunity to sort of try and correct the mistakes of the past decade or two. And really, in the 80s and 90s, Australia was the great world model for what to do right about immigration policy. There's a need to be less greedy and to think more about, you know, what we owe to migrants because of what they give to us. Yeah, I guess I disagree a little bit with the jock in terms of the temporary migration workforce. So I do, you know, I do think that there are policy levers that we can shift in terms of trying to make it more equitable for temporary workers to not get exploited. And we're definitely focusing in on what those can be and what those are and to try and level the playing field a little bit more so as to ensure that you know, we have strong protections in place that stop that from happening. We don't want to arrive at a situation where the only way to ensure that a worker has adequate rights is for them to become a permanent resident. Because what that gets us into is an immediate stock of people. So we, you know, it's only 190,000 now a year, or what was 160, but now going to 190. So that's not nearly enough when you think about the approximately 2.17 million temporary visa holders that were here in Australia, you know, before the pandemic. We have to think about this in a much more holistic sense. We're probably never going to arrive at a situation where we have substantially lower temporary migration just because of how our visa systems work and just the different types of visa subclasses that are held. Well, then building off that, this hunger that we talked about just earlier, you know, where we've got federal and state politicians as well as industry leaders talking about we need to bring these people in. Is bringing in skilled migrants going to be enough to entrench productivity gains into the Australian economy? Or or does the economic benefits of this workforce, this labour force, just paper over broader policy issues? Look, I think there'll be a lot of pent-up demand that we'll release over the next couple of months as you know, New South Wales and Victoria, two biggest and most populous states, start to open up. And I think, you know, once we start to bring back international students, that will bring a lot of um, life and vibrancy back to a lot of our cities, which I know my suburb, which has a lot of international students, has really been struggling in terms of some of that because some of the streets are just empty. A lot of rentals have been empty for a long time. We're looking at a lot of economic activity coming at us in the next couple of months. And I think it's going to be a great time for Australia. And hopefully we start to see some of those barriers to temporary migrants start to ease up in the next year or so. This is a pro-immigration chat in terms of economic benefit and in terms of cultural and social benefit. But there are still hesitancies. We had in a speech in July, uh, the RBA governor, Philip Lowe, saying that hiring immigrant workers to fill specific gaps, quote, dilutes the upward pressure on wages in these hotspots. And it is possible that there are spillovers to the rest of the labour market. This hiring can also dilute the incentive for businesses to train workers to do the required job. 
Gabriella, I, I know you've written about this in the past. Do you think this statement is accurate? Do you think that immigration can have this impact where it leads to lower wage growth and can prevent businesses from investing in their existing uh, employees? The governor's comments were interesting and were different from what the literature does suggest about this. So we know from the literature that the modelling that has been done both for Australia and overseas that migration, it's been found that it does not displace local workers. Now, I think despite all of that evidence, there's still been the prevalence of this idea that it might happen. And, you know, a lot of these effects are aggregate effects. So it is possible that in some occupations, you might see this occur. But for example, you know, we've had our borders closed for what two years now. How much have we reaped in terms of wage increases? We know the from the governor's own comments that you know wages have been really sticky to rise, and you know they've they've been trying to pull all the levers that they can over at Martin Place to try and figure out how to get wage growth going again. And despite very very low unemployment rates, some of the lowest we've had in a couple of decades, it hasn't budged. On top of that, though, we do have the broader cultural and and social issues in a country like Australia, where historically immigration has been divisive. Now, The Guardian today released its latest essential survey. It did have a couple of questions focusing on immigration. So, for example, 52% of respondents to today's survey believe that migration levels are either too low or about right. And then 51% think immigration is vital for Australia's economy. Now, simultaneously, 63% believe that increasing immigration would add more pressure to the housing system and infrastructure. And 48% agree with the statement that increasing immigration levels would create more competition for jobs and slow wage growth. So there's this kind of, I suppose, tension existing here where people say, well, immigration is a good thing, but also there are these preconceived notions about the pressures that immigration puts on society and on the economy generally. Gabriella, do you think this tension is accurate? or And if it is, then how do we address it to potentially make immigration more palatable? Yeah, look, I think there's, you know, there's a lot of claims on immigration, so transport and housing and infrastructure, wages, jobs and training of local workers, all of those are ones I've heard. We do know a little bit in the literature about how much immigrants cause house prices to rise and it's nowhere near significant in terms of the actual number. It's, you know, maybe an increase of about 1%. Whereas, you know, we've seen house prices rise by about something like 20, 25% over the last 18 months and sometimes even higher in some suburbs. So, and that's despite immigration, you know, not having occurred in the last 18 months. So there's other things that we need to consider. I'm hoping that Dominic Perrottet's ideas around a bigger New South Wales and a bigger Australia, you know, do translate into some transport and infrastructure spend and some housing spend as well, and that we see those come up. Training of local workers, like I don't think many people realize, but you know, when businesses do hire local workers through the temporary worker scheme, they actually have to pay what's called a Skilling Australia Fund levy, which is an amount of money, you know, approximately $1,700-ish that goes into a fund that's meant to educate local workers. We do have these systems in place. I don't think we talk about them nearly enough. There are opportunities to better use those resources, but we do need to focus on why people are not going into the VET system. And I know lots of people are doing great work on this, on this topic of trying to figure out what the barriers are to a VET education and to going through the system. Immigration has always been very controversial. Yeah, right from the white straight policy where we were sort of born as a nation on racial exclusion, you know, right through to today, there have been, particularly when there are downturns, immigration has been 
explained. And there's really not one economic problem that has not been linked to immigration, whether it's unemployment, whether it's housing price increases, whether it's the fact that wages aren't increasing. So it's a really easy cop out just to sort of blame immigration. We are such a nation built on and dependent upon immigration. That's not surprising to some extent. I mean, what I think that means is that we need to be very aware it would be sensitive to immigration policy. And I agree very strongly with Gabrielle when she talks about the rights of temporary migrants. My argument isn't so much that we ought to cut temporary migration intake, but the rights of temporary migrants have got to be sort of paramount here. The trade union movement in Australia has been, shall we say, cautious and sometimes hostile to immigration. And in many ways, really, I think there's a common bridge here. Unions are concerned about worker exploitation. Temporary migrants are being exploited. We need to sort of get this common bridge between employers, the government and the union movement to prevent temporary worker exploitation. And if we can do that, you know, we're resolving one big particular problem. But the other thing that when you have large intakes of immigration, then there are certain sort of obligations that come with that, certain infrastructure expenditure. And so the problems of congestion busting wouldn't have arrived if governments in in New South Wales and Victoria and other places didn't spend much more massively on public sector infrastructure, public housing, hospitals, public transport, these sorts of things. So once again, it seems to be often the short-sightedness of governments on immigration policy and the failure to see it as a long-term, medium, nation-building type phenomena and really, you know, meet the obligations that comes with having a cosmopolitan society rather than just taking the quick sugar hit in terms of productivity growth or economic growth. Now, as Australia attempts to grow its way out of a what is posited to be a $1 trillion debt by 2025, what, in your opinion, can we do to appeal to migrants? Yeah, look, I think uh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, and I agree with everything that Jock said and um, appreciate his perspectives on this. One of the tragic things that has happened because of our focus on the fiscal benefit of migrants is that we often just kind of forget about what happens to them once they're here. And the best example I can give of, of that having happened is in our last budget, there's this thing called the newly arrived residence waiting period, which is the amount of time you have to wait before you're eligible for benefits. And one of the things successive governments have done, they gradually reduce the, either the number of benefits that migrants are eligible for or the time that they have to wait before they are eligible for those benefits. So what that's done is that it's made their budget bottom line look really great, but it's also meant that, you know, a lot of migrants aren't eligible for job seeker allowance or even paid parental leave or even carers payments or even things like uh, FTBA or FTBB until they've been in Australia for four years. I think we need to think of migrants much more as a part of our society once they get here. And we need to really focus in on what their struggles are in the labour market and try and figure out how to help them. Once the, the, the planes take to the air again, once international travel opens up, I think that you know, there's a very strong demand by migrants globally for Australia, for life in Australia, for living in Australia, whether they be international students, working holidaymakers, guild, permanent migrants or whatever. So I think that, you know, despite some of the unfortunate chapters and parts of our recent and, and indeed past immigration history, we're a very attractive destination to migrants. I think we'll have no problem filling the migration quotas and those that are demand-driven, I think that will also be very quick 
to recover. It seems to me that, you know, we've just got to sort of meet our obligations to migrants. That's all for today. Thank you to my guests, Jock Collins and Gabriella D'Souza. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe, and I'll catch you back here next week.